Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Introvert Theater Podcast. This is Sergio yet again. I hope everyone is doing well. Um, just really quick before I get into this, I just got back from seeing the new Candyman movie about an hour and a half ago or so, and it was excellent. So <laughs> if you're a fan of the original um, and you're curious, I highly recommend it. Um, I, I kind of wrote it off because I thought it was going to be a reboot and that they had recast the role of Candyman. Um, and I, I never bothered to do my homework and research it. And I finally, finally did just out of curiosity, I think over the weekend, I think Sunday. And as soon as I heard that it was a direct sequel and that Tony Todd was coming back, I immediately wanted to check it out. So I made it a point to go to the theater uh, mask and tote, of course. And I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised. I thought it was shot really well. Uh, Chicago has never looked better in my eyes, so the cinematography was top-notch. So give it a shot, if you're curious. So now, um, let's get right into this, shall we? Um, today I'm going to be talking about a film called Train Spotting, which is directed by one of my favorite directors, Danny Boyle. It stars a young Ewan McGregor as Mark Renton, Ewan Bremer as Spud, Johnny Lee Miller as Simon, a.k.a. Sick Boy, uh, Robert Carlyle as Francis or Franco Begbie, Kevin McKidd as Tommy, and Kelly McDonald as Diane. It was released in 1996 and actually saw a sequel released 21 years later, titled T2 Trainspotting, back in 2017, which I'll be talking about on the next episode. So this film is set in Edinburgh, Scotland, and is about overcoming addiction, among other things. Uh, Renton, Spud, and Sick Boy are all young heroin addicts, with Renton being the one who genuinely wants to find a way off of this path that he's heading down. So to give you an idea, there's a scene where uh, Renton has to reach into a filthy toilet bowl to find a opiate suppository that he had just passed. So if that situation isn't enough to make anyone sober up, I don't know what is. So he's 26. He lives with his folks and has a room plastered in posters of Iggy Pop and other rock or punk bands. His wallpaper, however, is a nice contrast as it's covered in multicolored locomotives. His parents genuinely care for him, despite his problems, and in many ways are, are an anchor for him. Spud is more of a neurotic type, especially when on H, as, uh, as shown in a scene where he's completely high out of his mind and just kind of rambling on during a job interview. Though it's, it's a somewhat small role, He's someone that Renton can trust and depend on. Spud is more of a follower than anything else, and oftentimes this leads to him being pushed around easily. Sick Boy, aside from being an addict himself, is a James Bond nerd and constantly quotes lines of dialogue from random Bond films or recites his own dialogue in Sean Connery's voice. There's not much to him in this movie, He's more or less a reflection of Renton. And that's why Renton kind of wants to distance himself from him, because he's every time he sees him, I think he mentions in the film, 
he's reminded of himself. I think we all have one of those in our lives at some point. Uh, Franco is a firecracker, and he's just the wild card of the bunch. He can go off at any second without a moment's notice. He has some serious anger issues. So here he's presented as a very macho and very mouthy and almost a psychotic type. He starts or instigates fights that could easily be avoided and lands every everyone in hot water as a result. He mocks Spud, Sick Boy, and Renton for using heroin when he himself is addicted to alcohol. In fact, one scene has Begbie toss his empty glass over a banister at a pub, and it smashes over a woman's head, just leaving her bloody and screaming in agony. He um, goes down to the first floor of the pub and screams that no one's leaving until they find out who caused the accident in such an offensive way. I mean, he's calling everyone cunts and this and that, and eventually he starts a barroom brawl. So his issues in terms of where they stem from aren't explored here, but they are touched on in the sequel. But there's enough here in this film that we can at least assume as a viewing audience that we know where his anger and, and alcoholism come from. And again, that's something that I'll talk about when I talk about the sequel. Tommy, on the other hand, his his addiction is life. He enjoys soccer and the outdoors and even unsuccessfully tries to get his friends to go out on a hike with him. They get as far as the grassy field at the base of a mountain, and they just bail on him. That aside, his other addiction comes in the form of sexual stimulation and filming both he and his girlfriend in the act. Other than that, he's about as close as normal as you get out of the bunch. Diane, however, comes in to rent his life just as he's coming off of heroin. There's a scene where the boys are in a nightclub in, in what appears to be a celebration of their of their own sexual independence or freedom, as each of them is trying to go home with someone for the night. So the song Temp- Temptation by Heaven17 is playing loudly, and Renton notices that coming off of H has increased his libido exponentially, so he's he's ready to go. He tries dancing with some girls, but they just kind of reject him outright. He then sees this petite girl off by the bar alone smoking a cigarette. She heads for the door only to be stopped by this guy with two drinks in either hand, saying something that's inaudible to to her. Well, to him, I should say. Uh, She pauses for a moment, and she takes both drinks, and she just downs them in no time and walks off and leaves the guy there empty-handed. Renton, as he says, has fallen in love. So he runs out out of the club. He stops her before she gets in the cab, and she pegs him for what he is, as if she knows him almost condescendingly. You know, she says, let me guess, you're you're the quiet, artistic type, and probably bad, and this and that, and, you know, everything a girl wants or looks for. So she gets in the cab, and she asks if he's coming or not. And, of course, he hops in the cab with her, and as it turns out, she's underage and uses this to her advantage to make sure that they stay in contact throughout the film. As you can imagine, he finds this out the hard way. 
So from here, the film chronicles the ups and downs of drug addiction and recovery. The boys resort to stealing for money, serving time, they go through a relapse, and Renton even comes close to death after a severe overdose that is set to Lou Reed's perfect day. Visually, this is a great scene as Mark, after he takes a hit, falls back into the rug, and seemingly the the the, the rug kind of falls into this crevice in the floor of the of his dealer's home. Mark looks up from Mark looks up from his vantage point and before he loses consciousness, realizes that the rug around him is kind of mimicking like a like a gravesite, like he's being lowered into his own grave. And after a forced recovery by his parents, who lock him in his room, Renton moves to London. Tommy turns to heroin after his girlfriend breaks up with him and eventually dies. So in a sense, Tommy becomes a victim of circumstance. He may not have shared in the addiction initially, but maybe his addiction was building a dependency on one person to the point of where, when that person left, he just became lost in a vacuum of his own thoughts. So even in London, Renton's past kind of catches up with him as Begbie, Spud, and Sick Boy follow suit. And they get him in on this plan to sell some H that they scored at a good price and resell it. Renton agrees and pitches in, and they end up with 16,000 pounds that they can split now, they can split now evenly four ways. Uh, Renton takes a gamble himself in stealing the money while everyone's asleep and, in a sense, chooses life. He leaves Spud 4,000 pounds out of pity, saying that he felt bad for him. Begbie, of course, loses his shit and destroys the room that they're staying in and eventually gets arrested. It's mentioned somewhere earlier in the film that Begbie is wanted for robbery at some point. So coupled with this, he's apprehended and sort of becomes the focal point in the sequel. Which, again, I'll, I'll talk more about in the next episode. So this is one of those movies I can't watch too often because it's topically just heavy, but I appreciate it for its message and, and how well it's shot. I think it's one of those films everyone should see and maybe even be a required viewing in, in school curriculums. The movie only works if you can either empathize or sympathize with the characters. And I've said that many times before, and in this case you do. They're so grounded in reality and, and their slang and just their mannerisms are, are a reflection of that. I think Mark's arc is what drives the film because as a viewing audience, we want him to succeed and better himself. Uh, Iggy Pop's song Lust for Life plays a prominent role and directly relates to Renton as he is the one making a genuine effort to get away from this lifestyle. And when he does, it's it's a breath of fresh air. In a way, the film is about identity. During the scene where I had talked about earlier, where Tommy takes the boys to try and have them join in on a hike with him, they sit and argue about how they find no beauty in the surrounding area after Tommy asks them if their surroundings make them proud to be Scottish. Mark replies that being Scottish is nothing special, 
uh, the lowest of the low and the scum of the earth. So some of his problems stem from trying to find himself at the age of 26. He saw, I guess you can say that he saw the, the alternative as being servile, you know, having a mortgage, a TV, a car, etc. There are social norms that he didn't want to be a part of. In a lot of ways, these characters are like the Lost Boys being led through life by their addictions. By the end, we can ask if people are capable of change because they all seem so stagnant and or comfortable with where they are in their lives until the last, literally the last few moments of the film. I think in order to get to the point, or get to that point rather, you have to have an understanding of yourself, your emotions, and have a clear goal set for what you want for yourself. Now, it's it's one thing to lay that plan out and another to act on it. Sometimes that means severing ties from uh, things and people that kind of keep you where you are for selfish reasons. I feel like the question regarding whether people can change or not is explored once again in the sequel, and in ways that we as the viewing audience can relate to some 20 years later. So if you're like myself and, and you saw this film 20 years ago, and you find yourself coming up on on your 40s, I guess the sequel becomes kind of a meditation on that in a lot of ways. That said, I think this is a good place to stop, and when I talk about the sequel, which is uh, the next episode coming up on September 14th, I'll bring that up again and also compare scenes that mirror one another between the two films and what that means in the context of the sequel. Because there are scenes that seem there are scenes that seem familiar and that are that are actually just straight up borrowed from this film. And I think there's a reason for that. And that's something that I'll talk about uh, in the coming weeks. So until then, I hope every everyone has a great day. Thanks for listening again. And take care. And again, if you haven't seen this movie, it's one of those that you've got to see. So do take the time to watch it. All right. And thanks again.